Hello, and welcome to the Cynical Podcast, where we take deep dives into the shallow waters of today's blockbuster movies, star-studded films, and most hyped popcorn flicks. We're your hosts, Will, Malika, and Ecclesia, and today... We are continuing our quarantine miniseries, Tackling the 250. We all have embarrassing blind spots in our movie-watching repertoire, so using the IMDb Top 250 movie list as our guide, we will be finding the movies that we have always been meaning to get to and give a quick review of our first impressions. Today, we will be discussing Ron Howard's Best Picture winner, A Beautiful Mind, which currently ranks 138 out of the 250. So just a brief plot summary. After John Nash, a brilliant but asocial mathematician, accepts secret work in cryptography, his life takes a turn for the nightmarish. Ooh. <laughs> wow. That sounds more like the plot summary of an action movie yeah. than a biopic. Like a psychological thriller. Like, uh, what? <laughs> Seriously. Huh. Well, I feel like that is a good kind of indicator of what I felt about this movie, which was tonally... <laughs> It was all over the place. Completely agree. I'm not like a big Ron Howard fan. There's not a lot of his movies that I really like. Um, I think the only one that I'm a huge fan of is Apollo 13. But I feel like all of his movies, they don't like have a through line of theme or just always feels like he goes all over the place and tries to tell every part of every story rather than focusing on one specific storyline and then like driving that point home and letting that storyline flourish all the way through. And instead it's kind of like, bah, bah, bah. and I think it kind of worked in this movie because you don't catch on to the fact that he's schizophrenic and kind of losing his mind until it kind of hits you hard in the face, which works here. But just in general, I'm not a huge Ron Howard fan. Yeah, well, it's funny that you say that because I was thinking about Ron Howard as a director after watching this movie because it was my first time seeing it. And I kind of agree with you. I, I mean, I feel like I need to give him more of a chance because I probably haven't seen enough of his movies. Like I've seen Apollo 13. I've seen this. I've seen Solo. There's probably other ones that I've seen that I just don't know he directed. But I kind of agree. I feel like, and I've heard this before, that he's definitely a working director, right? Like he's not a Scorsese in that he has like a style and a vision and a this. He he can adapt material and make it cinematic, but he doesn't have like a signature. And I feel like it could work in this movie and it did work in parts, but overall the direction left a lot to be desired for me. Yeah. So I had actually seen this movie ages ago, probably around the time it came out. And I think a couple of times since then, but have not seen it in probably 10 years. So it's been a while. And on the rewatch, I couldn't remember why I liked this. I remember having good feelings toward this movie. And when rewatching it, I was like, oh, wow, this movie is so long. And there are some really charming elements. I mean, Jennifer Connelly is, ooh, she's just gorgeous and Chef's effortless kiss. and just... Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's the best way to describe her. She just, she's amazing. And I think like steals the show for sure. And there's a lot of like witty one-liners. Like the script is really rich. But as a whole, like you guys said, I just think it felt a little all over the place. And it's so funny that we're doing this episode right after the Goodfellas episode, which were both films based on books 
both about real life characters and then like taking some creative liberties, but then like feeling the need to have this like long ending just to be like, oh, and this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And it just feels unnecessary. Like I remember pausing it at one point to get some water or something and being surprised there was still 50 minutes left. You know, I was like, what? How can this movie still have 50 minutes? And I think it was around the time where he was in the hospital or we already knew that he had schizophrenia at that point. I was like, what can possibly happen? So I'm with you guys. I think at the time, this probably was a really important film, but it has not aged well, in my opinion. You bring up a good point. I did enjoy watching parts of this movie. Like there were definitely parts where I was super entertained, but for sure around that same point, I started thinking, how's there more to the story? And then honestly, there wasn't really. And everything that came after that point if you read a little bit about the real John Nash, it was all creative liberties. So it was also things that didn't need to happen. So the order in which they happened and the exact details were all creative liberties that were made to dramatize the film. And it just seemed like, well, knowing the truth, it wasn't necessary. And I don't think it added anything. Well, what's interesting is that I think his real life was more dramatic, right? He had an affair. He had all these other things going on. And his hallucinations weren't a best friend and an FBI agent and a little cute little girl. They were very disjointed and confusing to him, I'm sure. And so they like put a nice little bow on it on the life of a very complicated man. And it's just interesting what they chose to keep and what they chose to admit in telling the story personally i don't really mind taking creative liberties with a true story because it's a movie you know we want to watch it to be entertained so i actually love the three characters that he created and the way they utilize those in the story i thought that was uh really creative and really impactful especially Mm -hmm. because i love paul bettany He's a great actor, and I was crushed just when I found out he wasn't real because I was like, no, Paul. He's so (laughs) charming in this, and I love Ed Harris, too. Also great. Oh, you're so right. They're both just great actors. Yeah, and even, like, all the other mathematicians, all the other people he's like, great actors all around. Josh Lucas, like, fantastic cast. But, so this movie was one I hadn't seen, and so everything is just my first impression. Just watched it 30 minutes ago. But I agree (laughs) It was too long, but I actually liked the second half of the movie way more than the first half. For me, the first half was like, oh my God, how much do we need to like romanticize some intellectual asshole who doesn't get along with people and who is obsessed with himself? God, that whole storyline just like makes my blood boil of just these... (laughs) People who think they're above it all just because they're smart and he's like, oh, human connection doesn't matter. Like what you think is trivial. You going to class and learning things. What an idiot. Like, God, I hate that like you have a chip on your shoulder. No, I just. (laughs) Who hurt you, Will? Well, first of all, I don't like biopics in general. They're kind of my least favorite category of film. And then especially biopics about people who are assholes. I have no emotional connection to this person because they're such an asshole. I don't care about their great accomplishments that they did while being an asshole. Like, you're still an asshole. I don't care about you. But that actually, like, turned on its head in the second half, which is why I kind of liked it. But I don't know. The first half, I was like, ugh, I don't know why I'm wasting the time watching this movie. Just kidding. I do know to talk about it with you guys. 
couldn't agree with you more. I think I paused this movie approximately 7 million times <laughs> in the first half to look at Aaron and roll my eyes and then unpause it. Like, Seriously. That's so I, interesting. I, I just, I don't like asshole. Like, okay. And I think especially now watching this in 2020, considering the current situation with coronavirus and someone who is actively eschewing physical connection and other people, it's like, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. And it's weird because I feel like at the end, that's exactly what saved him, right? Like the whole point was that Jennifer Connelly and her commitment to him and her love for him and everything she did is what saved him. He, he says as much in his Nobel Prize speech. So like, I get that that was his transformation, but I just don't enjoy seeing the initial parts of that story. And it also made me really question why Josh Lucas and the rest of them would be friends with him because I was like, this guy's a dick. Like, why are you like 20 years later, Josh Lucas is giving him a job at Princeton. I'm like, he doesn't deserve a job at Princeton. He's an asshole. I know. Like when the scene, when they're in their backyard, this is after he had his breakdown and he's off his meds and the second breakdown. And then they're like eating dinner in their backyard and talking to him about like what he sees he says, like, sometimes I miss having conversations with him, referring to Charles, his, like, delusion, who's his best friend. But I'm like, this scene is great. Like, I want 30 minutes more of this scene. I don't need to see him when he's a young guy in Princeton getting turned down in a bar and slapped in the face. I'm like, yeah, he was an asshole during that part. If you want to, like, get me emotionally invested in this, don't spend 20 minutes about him being an asshole. Okay, I have a couple things to say on what you guys just said. First of all, you guys have in the past liked films that are one biopics, Ford vs. Ferrari, also starring Josh Lucas. Two, that's also a movie where the main character is an asshole. So is Goodfellas. Like, I don't think that necessarily having an anti-hero or somebody who's not likable as your main character, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. But what I really liked about the first half of the movie, and I personally prefer the first half, to the second half, because it was showing the origin story of this groundbreaking economic theory that has since changed the way we look at so many things in this world, right? They talk about that at the end. That's why he wins the Nobel Prize. Like, it changed everything. And I think that leaving that out would have been a huge mistake. Second of all, I want to say that you wouldn't have had the emotional payoff if you hadn't seen him be an asshole in the beginning. I think, like, it was so much more powerful to see this guy who was so full of hubris broken down and hurt your heart because you had seen him previously as a cocky asshole. So two things. One, I agree about the liking movies where the main character is an asshole. But the difference is that person is usually likable. We talked about Wolf of Wall Street when we talked about Goodfellas, but Jordan Belfort is like literally king douche. He is the biggest <laughs> yeah. asshole to have ever lived, but he's still likable. Same goes with Henry and Tommy from Goodfellas. Ugh, Ray Liotta. Even uh, Ken Miles in Ford vs. Ferrari. Those guys are charming and have charisma, yet you accept the fact that they're assholes. This he's I like, he I am cold. I am not social. I'm not good at talking to people, and I'm a huge asshole to everyone around me. Oh, man. I saw the twinkle in his eyes. I don't know. I mean, as I said earlier, like, I didn't love this movie as much on the rewatch, but I still found him really charming, found John Nash very charming in this. <laughs> I think the biggest thing, though, is that, like, kind of to Will's point, is that I could at least understand what qualities those other characters and, like, Goodfellas and those other movies had that endeared them to the people that did care about them. Everything that John Nash did in this movie 
you would think Jennifer Connelly's character, Alicia, would run for the hills. Like, she literally has to stop herself from having her initial reaction when he's late for her birthday and almost forgets and he says something stupid. She literally is like, oh, I have to rethink all of my girlish conceptions of romance, which A, is so sexist. I'm not even going to get into that right now. But like everything that he does to her, I can't quite understand why she puts up with it, except for maybe when he gives her the gift with the refracting light thing. Like that was kind of romantic because he actually listened to something that she said and he remembered it and got her a gift that connected to that. But leading up to that, he was just being a dick. Like, imagine if a guy that you're dating says to you, we've done the required number of activities. Can we sex now? That's basically (laughs) what he did. That is a very dickish thing to do. I don't care how charming you are. If someone said those words to your face, would you not walk away? Agreed. Well, that's what he expected her to do. That's why he's like, this doesn't usually work for me. They had a special bond and some women find intellect really attractive and it was enough for her. But to me, it painted my initial impression of Jennifer Conley's character as like almost a gold digger. I know he wasn't supposedly rich or as like a student who's trying to get a better grade in her class. But so she's like, obsessed with his intelligence. With- like she like I agree with Malika, like she was turned on by how smart he was and was willing to forgive his other social misgraces and stuff because she thought he was this important, smart man. For sure. But she's like a straight dime. She's obviously really smart as well because like she's in she's this, at MIT. Exactly. She's, yeah. she's in yeah. this super advanced math course at MIT. And like this dude is a super intellectual, yes, but huge asshole who doesn't like talking to people. She comes into his office, is like, bang me. I figured out this problem. He's like, No, you didn't, idiot. And she's like, Well, <laughs> all right, forget that part, but still bang me. And he's like, Okay. Like, I don't know. To me, just the first half of the movie, I was like, no. And to Malika, I agree that it's important to like know about the equilibrium, whatever the fuck it's called, that <laughs> equation, that that theory that he discovered or invented. But like, I have no idea what that is. What is the theory? What is the equation? What was the like it's ground? It's all part of game theory. It's economic theory. Like we don't have to get into all of this but now, but it's rather- actually really interesting. But stuff. <laughs> I would rather, I'm sure it is. You. Yeah. And I think that would be a better like subject for the first half of the movie is to talk about what he like discovered and the new theory he founded. And then like, so at least when it ties back at the end, we have some context as to why it was so groundbreaking and why he's receiving the Nobel Prize of Economics. Because the only mention really of it before we go into the storyline of him losing his mind is when he submits his paper to his, I don't know, not professor because he's a PhD, but when he submits his thesis advisor, yeah. and his yeah. advisor is like, this is groundbreaking. And he's like, yes, I know. And then that's it. Like, <laughs> No, that's not true though. Remember in the bar, like, that iconic scene where he's like, we all go for the blonde. Nobody gets the blonde. But if you all go for her friends, then one person could get the blonde. That's all part of it. That was the seed that got planted in his head that was the flower of his economic theory. So you actually saw the origin story of it right there. They planted the seed and then they like pounded it 12 feet into the earth. And then yeah, 50 yeah. years later, and then we got a tree. We got yeah. a tree. But that's what happened, right? Like right away, 
he wasn't recognized, but years and years later, and that happens to so many people. Like how many stories of, of authors who only became famous after they died, like they died penniless. No, I agree. But to me, there's two stories here. One, there's like his groundbreaking game theory evolution and the origin of where that came from, him not getting recognized for it right away. And then many years later, Nobel is like, hey, this is actually used so widespread. We're giving you an award for this. This is amazing. And then there's the story of him and his relationship with his wife and those around him and his mm -hmm. slow like degradation into delusion and schizophrenia and him coping with that. And like the way that Ron Howard intertwined those two storylines to me was like not that effective. I have a question for you guys kind of related to this because it kind of connects to how those two different through lines throughout the movie are connected. So what was he doing then if he wasn't working for the government? If Parcher wasn't real and he was never working for him, what the hell was he spending all his time on? I definitely like understand the fact that his delusions, they were kind of allowed to develop to a point where no one really knew how bad it was until it was almost not too late, but until he had a major kind of break. But then at the same time, it's like, then what the hell was anyone doing? Like, I just don't understand it. He was allowed to just be holed up in his office for months, if not years on end, just like scrambling and like doing whatever the hell he felt like. To me, like that's the part I don't quite understand because I agree that's kind of what connects his mathematical genius to the story of his schizophrenia. And that's when you kind of understand that, yes, he is this incredible thinker and he has all this great talent but that unfortunately, because of his mental illness, it is derailing his career. But his career didn't feel derailed. He felt like he was getting bailed out all the time. What actually happened to him? He got a job again. All of his friends were giving him breaks. Someone else was taking care of him. Like, I didn't really feel the depths of his despair because it felt like he always had a fallback. Couldn't agree more. I don't know if it feels fair to say that all of his friends were giving him a break because he had to go hat in hand to someone that he thought was his competitor, right? He didn't think he had a good relationship with Josh Lucas's character and was super surprised that Josh Lucas even thought of him as a friend. So when he went in there, he expected to be turned down. And he's like, I don't need anything. Like, I just want to spend some time here. This is a place that I feel good. So I don't think everyone was like, here, handout, handout, handout. Anything he had, he earned. Like, day after day, he had to put those demons away. Like, ignore people that he thought were real previously and, like, just keep focused on what actually is real. And that can't be easy. That's got to be exhausting. And so to me, it didn't feel like a handout at all. And to your point earlier about what was he doing, I mean, I think that's what the doctor says when they first lock him up. They're like, this went for so long undiagnosed because he was working all this classified stuff. And so he would tell one person he's working on something classified and then the other person classified. So no one actually knew what he was working on. And he had actually helped people. He was breaking codes and had previously, like when he first came up with the Nash algorithm, was writing on Windows. So like a lot of the behavior was wrapped up in it. And so the people around him just didn't recognize what it was. So like, I just wasn't sure how it could be possible. And again, it's just the world I'm not familiar with that someone could be allowed to just kind of do whatever they feel like and not have someone be like, what's going on here? I agree. So to me, the whole storyline of him working for Parcher and for the OSS 
was super effective because I just thought that's what he was doing. And so when you find out it wasn't real, it really hit me. And my reaction was, holy shit, I can't believe this isn't real. It's all in his head. But that was the first question I asked myself. What was he doing all this time? Malika, to what you were saying with he had to go hat in hand to his old rival and say, hey, I need help and I need a job, essentially. There's a 10-year gap between them at Princeton together and then him going to Josh Lucas's character and saying, hey, I just need something to like help me make it through the day. If not the FBI code breaking he was doing there, what was his actual time spent doing? What do you mean? We see him fighting depression. There's that whole garbage man scene, the scene where he's like in the shed. I think that's what we're supposed to assume is happening, right? He's trying to figure out what's real and what's not. And it probably took him years to get to a place where he could go hat in hand to Josh Lucas. But what is actually happening when he is supposedly working for Parcher and supposedly working for the government. He was still, I think, a teacher at MIT, technically, because he had an office there. But that's... <laughs> no answer. I mean, this is a, a movie. They dra- dramatized all of it. He, there was no actual Parcher. So it's hard to say. We should just uh, call up Ron Howard and ask him, what were you thinking? But uh, I got to end with Bryce <laughs> Dallas, don't worry. <laughs> oh, actually, that's great. I was going to ask you guys this question. Did you see the pop-up Bryce Dallas Howard, Where's Waldo moment? I did, yeah, I noticed. No, I was like, oh, I, I did not know she was in this movie. Um, it's the scene right where the doctor, Christopher Plummer, comes to grab John Nash and put him in the car. She's in the crowd. Oh. She's like standing next to a guy with a, a leather jacket. Huh. But the one thing that I did have in the back of my mind as I rewatched this movie was another film, Fight Club, which... First watch, you're like, oh my God, who's real? Who's not real? And then the second time, it's so fun to be like, ah, here are the little clues. So I don't know. It sounds like you guys will probably never watch this movie again. But I will say that I did enjoy having those moments. And I was watching it with my cousin who hadn't seen the movie. And he had the moment, just like you, Will, where he's like, what? Paul Bettany's character isn't real. And I was like, ooh, ah, no one talks to him there. And like, he gets ignored there. It was, it was fun. I did not see any of it coming. Like, I was just like, (laughs) (laughs) oh man, but we haven't even gotten to our favorite parts of this movie. I feel like we could just go back and forth on the merits of this film for hours. But do you guys want to share what we did like real quick? Yeah, my favorite scene was his Nobel acceptance speech because that was what like really drove home the emotional center of this movie to me even though we discussed it's not really based in reality but to me that was the moment where we really understood what the movie was about it was about him coping with his schizophrenia and his relationship with his wife you know this movie kind of has a happy ending you know it's not a happy movie but at the end there is a resolution that he has found a way to cope with his disease and still live a fulfilling life. Yeah, I really like the last scenes as well. I just thought it was super sweet. And to your point, Will, it did have a sense of kind of closure. I mean, obviously dealing with mental illness, there's no like, hey, I'm just magically better. But you definitely got the sense that through the years he'd learned to cope with his struggles and that he was in a place that he was like at peace, which I thought was really great. I'm going to take a completely different turn. And my favorite scene was actually when you first meet Alicia and John's teaching a class. He completely forgets. He comes in late. He's not even wearing like a button down shirt. He's just wearing short sleeves. And he's just so irritated and closes the window because there's construction happening outside. So all the students start complaining. It's like, sir, it's so hot. Can we open the window? 
And he's just a dick about it. And he's like, well, I need to hear myself think. So no. And Alicia just goes over to the window and you can tell he's about to like kind of tell her off. And she just works her magic and convinces the construction guys to stop for 45 minutes. And there's just this moment between her and Russell Crowe, between Jennifer Connelly and Russell Crowe. He's looking at her. I'm like, damn, that's good chemistry. And it's really like that scene because I felt like they were the emotional heart of the movie, their relationship. And I liked the start of it. I thought it was just like, wow, this was a really fun way to introduce his future wife. Yeah. In that scene, John Nash is really looking like Maximus Decimus Marilius or whatever his name is at Gladiator. <laughs> looking buff as fuck. He was looking so buff. Even though it was like four years later, I think, between the two movies coming no, out. No, no, no. No, it was one. Really? That's yeah. It? Gladiator was 2000. Beautiful Mind was 2001. I mean, maybe they filmed Gladiator a little bit earlier. Like, you know, sometimes those yeah. big epics can take oh. a while. But it was within a couple of years that they did those oh, two wow. movies. Oh, wow. For some reason, I thought it was several years later. Oh, no. You know what I'm thinking of is between this one and Cinderella Man. Uh, another yes, 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 yes. Russell Crowe, Ron Howard movie. That's yes. Sorry. Got them all mixed up. But it's funny that both of you pick scenes that are about the love story between John Nash and Alicia. Because my favorite scene also is between the two of them. It's so cheesy. And I almost hate this scene. But I also love this scene. It's a scene where uh, they're outside of the party at the governor's house. And he's like, oh, pick an animal, a shape, anything. And she's like, an umbrella, an octopus. And he like shows her the stars. And I think that's super corny for the record. But what I do really, really enjoy about this movie is their chemistry. And that was like the pinnacle of that chemistry right there. Like it was so sexy. And I was like, oh my gosh, should I be watching this with family? Like it was, I agree it was with really you. nice. And you know, like John Nash hadn't been a sexy character up until now, but I was like, ooh, these characters have something. And it kind of kicked off as you guys said, like it was the emotional core of the movie. It's funny you say that, Malika, because that was hands down my least favorite scene of the entire movie. <laughs> I know it's so cringeworthy. I, hated and that I, scene. I know, I know. But there's something about it where I'm like, wow, I was like electric to me. And like she's clearly attracted to his intelligence. That's what brought them together. But the scene where he's pointing out shapes in the stars, I'm like, <laughs> what? That's that's He's just pointing. He could be pointing at anything. He could just be moving your finger in any random shape. That's not any sort of smart thing he's I doing. I dare you to try that move and report back on whether it worked. Yeah, I think that's the point. It's like he was actually trying because I think up until that point, he was in disbelief that this woman would want to go out with I him. I was too. And yeah. I feel like that was the moment that you <laughs> kind of he kind of realized like, oh, I should try. I should give a shit. She's like into me. Like, what the hell is going on? And I And I liked it for the same reasons, though I also agree it was incredibly cheesy and like, what? Yeah, he's thinking, wow, this drop-dead stunner is still wasting her time on me now. Might as well put in a modicum of effort. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. What are your favorite quotes, though? My favorite quote actually has nothing to do with the entire point of the movie and is from Parcher, <laughs> who isn't even a real person. But when they're talking, he says something to the tune of conviction is a luxury for those on the sidelines, which I thought was actually a great quote. And pretty applicable to today of like people get so invested in their side and get so aggressive and have so much conviction about their beliefs on their side, but they're not even really involved in the central conflict. And that applies to so many things going on today. But it to me resonated because it's kind of how I feel about most things in life. And one of my personal mottos is the truth is in the middle and I don't know, that resonated with me where 
these things that seem so simple and easy to people on the sidelines who are observing, it's so black and white, but really when you're involved in the middle of it, there's so many shades of gray. And that quote had nothing to do with the rest of the movie. So <laughs> not really a great quote. I find but. that ironic, Will, seeing as we are making a podcast right now, and that's probably the most sidelines thing anyone <laughs> could ever do. We're like critiquing Ron Howard, who spends his entire life making movies. I'm like, have I made a movie? No. Those who can't <laughs> make movies, make podcasts. On movies. Put that on a t-shirt immediately. <laughs> Malika, you have a million dollar idea. Uh, what are you wasting your time doing? Sponsor dude? us, True. t-shirts. True. Sponsor us at t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Only the V-neck kind, though. Yeah, that's the best one. Duh. We are being crazy right now, which is kind of perfect because my favorite quote from the movie is, there's no point in being nuts if you can't have some fun with it. This is when Saul has come to visit Nash after he's been released from the hospital and he pretends that Saul is sitting on an imaginary friend. And I just like loved it because there's been some really charming moments throughout the movie. A lot of good one-liners. Um, I love the mystified, stupefied, blah, blah, blah. Like, I forget what the words are. Petrified. But like, stupefied by you. Petrified. Mortified. Something, something. By you. you can use any one of those words in any order. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I've butchered that quote, but like, I love that. He does it a couple of times. There's, there's some other things throughout the movie when he like throws the desk out of the window and whatnot. But I don't know. That one was despite the hardships that he's currently facing, right? His whole world has just come crashing around him. His best friend's not real. This guy who had given him meeting in his life, he thought he was helping the U.S. fight the Russians, isn't real. This little girl he cared about isn't real, yet he's still able to hold on to a little bit of humanity and still make a joke. I just thought that was really sweet and charming. Yeah, Malika, we're completely on the same wavelength because my favorite quote is along those same lines. It's towards the end where the guy from the Nobel Committee comes to him to let him know that he's been nominated. And he stops one of his students uh, on the way out and says, hey, can you see him? And then she like says yes. And he's like, okay, good. Now that I know you're real, like, who are you? What do you want? Like, I just love the fact that he's embracing mm -hmm. every part of himself and he's not like trying to be like, oh, I have this mental illness and I just need to be like constantly paranoid or you know what I mean? Like, I don't need yeah. to be like so self-serious all the time. I really like the fact that he was able to sort of embrace everything about him and still live his life. And I think that was a great portrayal of that. I agree with the two of you. And to me, it emphasizes my point of view that John Nash was way more likable after his series of hardships than he was before. He was an ass before, but after everything he went through, I don't know if this was supposed to be a point of it all, but he became much more likable and it sucks because he was going through such a terrible traumatic life experience, but he became much more likable to me afterwards than when he was obsessed with himself and his own genius. It's funny because I was just about to say those moments, those beats prove that he was always a funny, charming guy, he but he was so wrapped up in his own sense of self, his own need to achieve that he couldn't see anything outside of that. Yeah, so I, agree with I that. think that like there's a reason like Saul and Bender were his friends. Like they did all hang out at the bar. I think they did care about him to an extent. He did have people who loved him. He's obviously Alicia found something to hold on to. She did marry him. She did stay with him in the film. There were redeeming qualities. I think that 
hubris was the forefront of his personality in those early years. He wasn't a malicious character. He was an asshole because he thought very highly of himself, not because he was out to hurt people but or those to are the put worst them kind down. Of people. <laughs> I know, I know, but you can still be a an egotistical, charming guy. <laughs> I do have to say, it is a sign of a good movie when you can have such rich conversation about a movie. That is a sign of a good movie, if you ask me, even though a lot of it is me bitching about stuff I didn't like. About. <laughs> I bitch more about stuff I didn't like when it's mostly a good movie than I do when it's Hobson Shaw. So... <laughs> <laughs> What did I say about my boy, The Rock? You better step off. Well, well you were walking a tightrope right now. Like, you think a quarantine is going to stop Malika and me from destroying your life? Fair. All right. So, well, this was the movie that we watched because you hadn't seen it, but I also hadn't seen it and Malika had. So, with that information, this movie is currently ranked 138. How do we all feel about its place on the list and that number? Should it be higher? Should it be lower? Or is it just right? I like the movie. I bitched a lot about it in this podcast. I thought it was good. I thought the first 50 minutes sucked, but, you know, it came around. It probably deserves a place in the 250. It won Best Picture in 2001, so obviously a lot of people thought it was better than Lord of the Rings, even though that's not true. False. That is false. <laughs> but, you know, it deserves a spot. 138 is pretty much smack in the middle, so... I can't really argue one way or the other, but it was good. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. That's all I can say. <laughs> it's above the Wolf of Wall Street, just so you know. <laughs> what else is it above? <laughs> Lock, stock, and two smoking barrels, Raging Bull. Oh, no. <gasps> Raging Bull? There will be blood. What? Okay. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. I Chinatown, Dial M for Murder, V for Vendetta. Malika, the words no you're saying are just making me more Inside upset. Inside Out? I didn't. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It's above the sixth set. Fuck that. We're up. <laughs> sorry, I had to interrupt you. No, you're, it was completely valid because that is an atrocity that should be corrected. It was definitely an interesting watch. I didn't particularly like this movie. I actually straight up disliked it at most parts. And I really do question the Academy's integrity knowing that it won Best Picture over Lord of the Rings. So I would not recommend this movie. I don't think it <laughs> deserves a place on the top 250, especially considering all the movies that it's above, such as The Sixth Sense, which I think pulls off a lot of the same kind of themes better. I think this is the first time that I am actively disagreeing with the IMDb users. So come at me, bro. IMDb users. Oh, this is a tough one. I think it could live on this list. I just don't know if I were to make a personal 250, it probably wouldn't have made it. I had actually forgotten about this movie until we decided to do a podcast on it and I had to rewatch it. So it, it's an interesting one because, as I said, I did enjoy like picking out the parts where I saw that there was clever filmmaking. I did love, as I, I've mentioned a million times, the cast and Jennifer Connelly and the chemistry. And there's great moments in the script. But is it something that's going to live on in my heart for years to come? Likely not. And yeah, I've said this before, but I don't think it aged as well as I would have hoped. Yeah, I agree. My personal 250, it wouldn't be on there. It was a nice watch. So I think the consensus is it was a very good movie, except for Clay. So I guess that is not a consensus, but, <laughs> but. Do we need to define yeah, consensus? Between me and Malika, it's a consensus. It's a very good movie. 
but maybe not worth the acclaim that it received at the time. So that's it for us today. Thanks for listening. I don't know why you guys still listen to us at this point. There's only what else are they going to do? So we appreciate you guys. Follow us at Cynical Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and follow our wonderful producer, engineer, editor, do it all man, Aaron Kelly at ak.audio on Instagram. Any closing notes, you two? Yeah, last thing I'd like to say is just like it's super interesting to me that you love the last bit of it and I love the first bit of it. So together, we love the movie. I was going to say the same thing. I was like, oh, you guys like a half each. I like zero halves. That's math. <laughs> and that's the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's game math. theory. Right. And it's a movie about a mathematician. That's so it all works essentially out. what Yay. game theory is, right? <laughs> <laughs> Wow, did you go to business school? No, No, I think he went to film school. Hashtag film school nerd. (laughs) Okay, bye. Till next time. Thank you.